Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Hey, Catholic Stuff Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Here we are, Father John, Father Mike. Can you hear me? Ah, there we go. It's a headphone thing. A weird headphone. Are we okay? Are we alive on the computer? Yep, we're good. Okay, so here we are. Round two, Michael. So what is your plan uh, over the next few weeks here, Miguel? Just working away? Well, I am going to be working away. Uh, I'm staying here in Roma. I've got my sister's wedding in April, so um, it was going to be a little bit much to go back in April and then again in June. Um, So I'm going to stick around. I've taken all these masses with the Missionaries of Charity, Um, so it'll be something of a retreat time for me with the missionaries. Excellent. To... um, uh, visit the uh, visit the porch. I don't know. I'm trying to think of the po- tying poverty into Christmas. Uh, okay, it's like life with the shepherds, maybe. Uh, okay, gotcha. The um, yeah, well, we're gonna miss you in the uh, skiing back home in Colorado. But I think you've chosen a, a worthy, a worthy oh, uh, couple weeks. How's here. the snow back home? I don't think know? it's good. Yeah, there's it's, all see, these fires going on in California. We're praying for you out I there. Know. It's yeah, it's crazy. So we need we need. We need moisture, we need snow, and uh, they're getting it here in the Alps, and it's always the wrong season, so we're going to go hopefully ski up there. And Yeah, my friend don't have Trev Tabertsma, my snowboarding buddy, mm-hmm. he's got me all jacked up about Treva. watching this uh, snowboard video. You're going to watch that Quicksilver video? What's the name of it again? I don't know. Pandemon- uh, perce- depth Perception. Depth Perception, yeah. Oh, he's so excited. Yeah, he's been talking about this new- thing. Yeah, it's going to be good. I think uh, anytime we're we're skiing, you know, it's it's always good. But it's nice to have some fresh snow. I was talking to this guy from East Coast, Vermont guy. He's like, "Oh man, you guys in the West like that powder stuff? No way. You mean the nice icy slopes? What? Little snow, nice and cold." I was like, "What? No, so that's thy friend doth protest too much." Yeah, I was like, uh, "I think he's trying to make do with the best." <laughs> making a, I mean, making a point. I don't know. Supposedly, he said. I don't. Has he ever skied the pow? I don't think he likes skiing the pow because it's hard to ski pow. It's different. It is hard. To, it's yeah, different. I that's think true. that's. I think that was his point. Once I got John O'Brien on one of these. Oh my gosh! You remember that pow runs, and he hated me forever. We're friends. Was again. that the same time we got John O'Brien lost in the trees? And <laughs> I think so. He yeah. It was. Uh, oh, John. Yeah, that was a. Uh, watch out! That tea is hot. Oh, <laughs> oh my lips! Burning the lips. Most, oh. The most powerful tea kettle in the universe. Oh. We have it right here. And metal cups. Metal cups. The genius of Father John. Do you know who gave me that metal cup? The oh. one that you often complain of? John McCoy. He did? Yeah, he got I me love that. John McCoy. I think he's a great dude. I think it's meant to keep like moderately hot drinks hot. Yeah. Not like well, scorching, a, scorching. It's a camping cup. Right. And camping food gets cold quick. Right, right. So. But... You know, like uh, noonday uh, Roman drinks don't get cold. No, quite. they don't. That's true. They burn lips. I, you know, I would carry that thing around this place, and uh, and then somebody finally stopped me, and they're like, "You Colorado guys are so weird." And I was like, "What are you talking about?" And he's like, "You're carrying a camp, a <laughs> camp uh, cup, just in the library every day." And I was like, "Oh, you didn't even think about that." And they're like, "Is this part of your whole thing?" And I was like, "It's really not. Like, yeah, it's just it's, it's just what we own. Not and calculated." It's a nice cup though, but it does it does keep it scorching, scorching hot. But what the, do you do for the, burnt lips? Yeah, I don't know. Chapstick. Don't talk. Don't. <laughs> it's just the start of. You're the... gonna be like talking, yeah, like, you know. 
Yeah. So, anyways, just be careful, and I'll be careful as well. This is the same thing with these guys. These super mugs. We've talked about this ad nauseum already on the podcast, but these mugs, man, they just like these Yeti mugs. Incredible. So this is thanks to Aunt Judy. She got me this. Thanks, Aunt Judy. My godmother. So those things are meant for soup. I think you ought to be brewing up soup. some soup for those things. Yeah, that'd be nice. I haven't had some soup lately. Yeah, life here uh get you have moments when um our our life in the library <laughs> you realize how lame lame we're getting, you know, when you're burning your lips on uh, your hot tea every day. And I, I had this like uh, moment in the library. We study in this place called the Rare Books Room, which is great. All these old manuscripts from the last couple hundred years. And it's a very cool room. Um, but like the highlight of my day was I actually needed to reference a rare book. And oh, so yeah. I got the old wood wood um, ladder and brought it over and went way up onto the old dusty tomes and pulled off this thing. Oh, I yeah. from... Books are Francisco, Francisco Suarez in the 16th century or something. That a boy. And I just referenced it for like two seconds, but I felt so legit, you know. And, and the pages uh, are so crisp. Yep. Like they're going to just fall apart. And I was like, this is so awesome. I am so awesome. I can't believe I just did this. And I was like, you are so lame. The <laughs> highlight of your day was that you just did that. And I was like, I know. So, But I told Charlie Sampson, who was in the library, and he was like, that's awesome. So he appreciated it. Yeah, come on. Come on, man. You know, a lot of people go to the cubicle and they sit around and the highlight of their day is like like uh, bouncing the bobblehead next to their desk yeah. and getting a little laugh. Yeah, that's true. Well, the highlight of Daryl Nepple's day, my father, was Army beat Navy yesterday. Did you know that? Nope. Big, big win. Army has not beat Navy in a long time. And uh, this is like the whole the whole season, you know, nothing else really matters except... If you beat Navy, I met my um, dad went to West Father Point. That's why he's... friend uh, Sierra. Uh huh. Sienna Sierra. Better get this right. She. Uh... Oh, she's Navy. She was cool. She's and, Navy. Yeah. Uh, she said something about go Navy, I beat know. Army at the end. Sorry, Sierra. And I was kind of like, yeah, all right, I'll, I'll follow. But I forgot about your dad. Father Michael Lachlan, who is an international spy, possibly. We don't really know what he does um, all day long, but he might be, like, saving the world from destruction. But we're in Positano. No, he, he likely is saving the world from we're destruction. We're in Positano, uh, Italy, and he's like, I got a buddy who's got a restaurant here. You guys want to go there? And we're like, what? And he's like, I got a friend in Naples. Do you mind if she comes down and joins us? We're like, who are you? And so Sierra was great. Yeah, he is the international man of mystery. And clearly good at riding a motorcycle. Because Matt Tynan, <laughs> via Molly, who works with us on the podcast, sent this link, and it was some video commercial for some motorcycle. And yeah. The, it's like doing all these hip shots of the of the bike, and then all of a sudden this guy climbs on, and we're like, that's O'Loughlin. <laughs> like, what the heck? So he is a uh, movie star, yeah. international man of mystery. He doesn't say anything. He just looks at the camera all cool. Yeah. And then rides that bike. Yeah. <laughs> I was so, so we're talking about doing a... And there was like this cool song in the background, and so we're we're kind of planning our Father Mike rap spoof of oh, that. We're thinking a segue, and what did we decide at Lord's Day last night for the song? Ah, Beck, Loser by Beck. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's, be good for the soundtrack. That's it. So I don't know if you want that, or if 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 the segue is too lame. If you need to do some kind of like Motorino or something. Well, I can't. Yeah, I mean, what I can I can ride my little. Uh, Rocinante bike. There you go. Rosie's too cool, though. No, she's, it's got to be at some sort of motor vehicle. Yeah. I don't mind the Segway. Yeah. I'll make it look cool. 
Just yeah. give me some shades. I almost got nailed by a Segway on the uh, Via del Corso. This group was just bombing, and I thought they would stop because I was in a walkway. I almost got blasted by like eight of them in a row, and I was like, this would have been carnage if the first one hit oh, me, and then they just start man. flying over each Look, other. these are first-timer Segway riders. Yeah, yeah. They don't know what they're doing. No, it's... They could collapse at any moment. Have you seen the Segway that doesn't even have a... It's just a thing in the middle of your legs. Have you seen this thing? It's oh, like yeah, it's futuristic. very popular on... Very strange looking. Viral yeah. videos. What do you call those things? A hoverboard or a foot Segway? Yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. Maybe we'll put you on one of those in the future. So, I'll have to keep glancing back at the camera. All right. Well, look, I loaded up my teapot with some uh, black tea. Because now you're rolling, baby. I was starting to starting to get drowsy here. Well, and he confessed during the break that uh, he didn't drink coffee today. So, no, I'm why totally why would you ever do that? Snoozy. Why is that I a, don't know. I forget why is that sometimes. A good idea ever? No, it's not. <laughs> It's not. It's it's a very bad idea. But the coffee here is kind of subpar. So that's an understatement. Unless yeah. I'm drinking your espresso machine here, right? It's kind of uh, always a, a, a decision, a discernment whether or not it's worth it. Probably worth noting here that Advent is not a penitential season. If they're wondering why we're not drinking coffee and drinking tea and you know all these different things, right? Well, Unless, not, are you doing penance? Is it for um, us? No, not, no. well. I'm just saying, like, if people are like, unintentionally, oh, there to, oh, you know, we're just out of bourbon, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I managed to drink it all yeah. <laughs> in this penitential season. Yeah, last night. And uh, so, anyways. Oh, I mean, I've been adopting new um, prayer, uh, I don't know, penances. Not much. But adding to the prayer schedule. It's probably always good to have penance in the life. But anyways, here we go. Okay, so I don't know if maybe this one's going to come out after Christmas. Maybe I'm going to replace this one with yours or switch them. Because this is going to be an Advent podcast. Mm. And yeah, we better it doesn't make a whole them. lot of sense after Christmas. And it's also not going to make a whole lot of sense. Well, I guess it will well, if this I'd one comes out first. A little bit of time. Okay, let's switch them. Sounds good. So this will come out on Thursday. We'll just confuse uh, yeah. everybody. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Yeah, but if it's Advent, let's do that. Okay. Good. Yeah, all right. So let's do it. Okay. I want to I want to give you three images here, okay, people? Three images. Three images for um, entering into the spirituality, the ethos, the feel, the vibe of Advent. Wow. For the sake of your prayer and your Catholic life. That tea is kicking in, man. Come on, baby. You are awake. Oh. No, not yet. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so what... like. Tell me some primary images for Advent. Primary images. What are some images that we have? Are we doing quiz show now? Is that what it's kind of quiz show? Yeah, um, I don't like quiz show. I don't show know. Ever primary? Well, okay. So primary what, images of Advent. Yeah, there's some things that go along with candle, Advent. The Advent candle. Yeah. Okay. Hey, <laughs> there good. We go. Well done. All right, we got it. Uh, we used to have those like twelve day of Christmas things. You'd open up one every day, get a little mm-hmm. chocolate. Get a little chocolate. That's Ad, not what I'm thinking of. Advent. I like it. Markets in the Advent north markets. of in the north of Europe. Absolutely purple in the liturgical purple. as a liturgical color. Yep. Okay. Can't so think, why what else? no Gloria during mass? <laughs> That's right. All right. Uh, a lot of readings from the prophets. Right. Isaiah. Okay. So what? Why the? Why the candles? Why the lights? Why the lights? I'm going to try to lead you with this question. Okay, 
Well, why candles? Yeah, why lights? I'm thinking um, December is the darkest month of the year. There it is. So Advent is a season of darkness, of preparing for the the coming of the light, Christ. Yay. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. All right. So, you know, Christmas is set around the uh, winter solstice. That is the moment when the night is the longest in what, this must be the northern hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the day is the shortest. So it's a season of darkness. And uh, dark becomes an important image for um, just the feel of and the, and the, the understanding of this Advent season, preparing for the light, just like you said. The light is coming, the dawn, Jesus is the day. Um, and then we light candles in the darkness because the light is sort of growing. You know, three, you light a candle, a new candle each week, and the light grows leading up into this great moment, right? Right. Okay, so I want to use, uh, get, offer three images of darkness and light as a way of uh, kind of meditating on the um, Advent season. All right? All right. Okay, the first one. Intrigued. Plato's Allegory of the Cave. Hey-o. You, you know, your old favorite. Written around 360 B.C., hmm. um, and it's found in the Republic, Book 7. Uh, you have the allegory. Do you remember the allegory of the cave? I do. I'm going to read it, so I'm not asking you to Excellent. recount it. So Socrates <laughs> says to Glaucon, and now I said, let me show... This is going to be kind of like a story time. Okay. I, I have two... You're going to do voices or just... Well, it's all Socrates mostly. Okay, yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> And now I said, let me show in a figure how, how far our nature is enlightened or unenlightened. Behold, human beings living in an underground den or a cave, which has a mouth open toward the light and reaching all along the den. Here they have been from their childhood and have their legs and necks chained so that they cannot move and can only see Sounds before like them. Sounds graduate school you're describing? Or? Oh, man. <laughs> this is for Sorry. Socrates, everybody. This is life being prevented by the chains from turning their he- around their heads. Above and behind them, a fire is blazing at a distance. And between the fire and the prisoners, there is a raised way. And you will see, if you look, a low wall built along the way, like the screen which marionette players have in front of them, over which they show the puppets. And Glaucon says, I see. And do you see, I said, men passing along the wall, carrying all sorts of vessels and statues and figures of animals made of wood and stone and various materials which appear over the wall. Some of them are talking, others silence. You have shown me a strange image, and they are strange prisoners. Like ourselves, I replied. Oh, this is Socrates. Like (laughs) ourselves, I replied. And they see only their own shadows or the shadows of one another, which the fire throws on the opposite wall of the cave. True, he said. How could they see anything but, but the shadows if they were never allowed to move their heads? And of the objects which are being carried in the like manner, they would only see the shadows. Yes. And if they were able to converse with one another, would they not suppose that they were naming what was actually before them? Very true. And suppose, further, that the prison had an echo which came from the other side, would they not be sure to fancy when one of the passers-by spoke that the voice which they had heard came from the passing shadows? No question. To them, I said, the truth would be literally nothing but the shadows of the images. That is certain. 
And now look again and see what will naturally follow it if the prisoners are released and disabused of their error. At first, when any of them is liberated and compelled suddenly to stand up and turn his neck round and walk and look towards the light, he will suffer sharp pains. The glare will distress him, and he will be unable to see the realities of which in his former state he had seen the shadows. And then conceive someone saying to him that what he saw before was an illusion, but that now, when he is approaching nearer to being and his eyes turned towards more real existence, he has a clearer vision. What will be his reply? And you may further imagine that his instructor is pointing to the objects as they pass and requiring him to name them. Will he not be perplexed? Will he not fancy that the shadows which he formerly saw are truer than the objects which are, are now shown to him? Okay, he goes on and on and on. I was going right? to say, this is a, uh, I'm going to go get some more bourbon and just keep talking. <laughs> I told you, it's going to be story time. Okay, so they're living in the cave, and um, the reality that they know is an illusion, right? right? Shadows. It's shadows yeah. on the wall. True reality is outside the cave, but um, they're, they're neither um, capable of actually accessing that reality, nor could they stand it if they did. You know, the light would burn and they wouldn't be able to because they're accustomed to the cave, right? So for Plato, this allegory describes the reality. He's, he believed that there, were, there was a higher reality of forms. Now, that would be too complicated to get into. But a higher reality, like a heavenly reality, mm-hmm. of which the things that we encounter here on Earth are just um, sort of an illusion, right. kind of shadows of the truths that are there. So they express the same shape. They're, they're kind of approximations of those things, um, but they're not the things in, in themselves. Now, Plato and his followers, well, we don't, I'm not sure about Plato exactly, but his followers thought that human beings could come to this sort of enlightenment on their own, that if you recognize this whole world of illusion for what it is, then you can transcend it and uh, focus on these heavenly realities and, um, and leave your blindness and leave your cave, um, which he thought Socrates was kind of the great prophet who had done that, and it comes back to the people, right? Right. Okay, so this is a people who are dwelling in darkness, uh, incapable of uh, seeing reality for what it is. Now, the Christian... Um, the Christian talk of the fall, our, our, our reality, our um, existence, um, for, the, for the Judeo-Christian tradition, um, we use similar talk of darkness and light, of this illusion and false reality, and then a greater reality that's beyond. But we have a different solution. Um, we, we talk about the fall of Adam and Eve, right? This is the cause of our darkness. That after the fall of Adam and Eve, all of the human beings are in this, in this state of not actually understanding the reality of what, we, um, uh, what we're about, of our existence, As particularly with the spiritual level. That there's a whole spiritual world, God's providence, God's involvement in human history, angels, demons, spiritual realities that are at work in life, but we don't see them. Um, we're, we're in some sort of darkness, um, the, uh, the Gospels begin with this sort of imagery. Remember, John's Gospel begins with the prologue and talks about Jesus coming into the world was like light coming into darkness. Uh, and the whole world is dark after the fall. 
Okay, so this is darkness becomes something of a an image of the fallen world. That's just like the the reality that we exist in. But we think that it affects everyone everywhere. That's because sin is everywhere and in everyone. Uh, we all live in this sort of dark place. Um, and in addition to actually like the consequence of the fall being our falling into darkness, we have a sort of allergy to the light, that we are uh, threatened by the light. It, it's, it's a problem. It, God's presence actually provokes us. We're kind of at odds and become enemies with God uh, in such a way that we don't welcome the light. Uh, that's what John's prologue talks about. Um, the, the light came into the world, but the world did not want it. It rejected it. Right? We, uh, there's something comfortable about the darkness, where we're used to it and, um, and uh, feel threatened by the presence of God, the presence of the light. Okay. I like that. This is, a, this is a great image um, and a very complex one philosophically, so you're doing a good job of like, breaking it down and applying it, I think, um, with our time limits here. I think about uh, my own kind of coming to Christ, and it had to be kind of a violent waking up to the fact that I was totally blind and I had no idea. I was just a slave in the cave. And then I think about a lot of like friends or like now seeing friends raise their kids and kind of a more robust education in the faith. They kind of accustom them to the light more naturally, mm. and they just kind of grow up with that, you know. Um, and um, I think that's a really beautiful part of it. It's just that they, they become aware at a younger age, kids do, of this interplay between darkness and light. They can't describe it, obviously, like you are, but they're there. But for those of us who were just kind of recklessly blind in darkness and didn't even know that we had no spiritual eye to see any of this, it really was like the experience of being dragged against our will Mm. into the light and it's just completely overwhelming and then the adaptation happens and then and then the realization and then the the desire to bring people out from the darkness and then they they kill them you know yeah. sorry did I jump to the end no and so. i mean that's true and i think um an important an important point um that you make of being accompanied like someone came and brought you out right. into the light um that's that's the kind of Christian difference between Plato's understanding and um, the Judeo-Christian one, is that we think that we need salvation, that you have to be saved, that someone has to come and free us from this state of uh, darkness. And maybe the, the allegory of the cave is helpful there because the people are in shackles. Mm-hmm. They're, they, they can't free themselves. But then Plato does think that you can kind of come to this place of enlightenment on your own, mm-hmm. which the Christian says you can't. Um, that we're all stuck in sin and the darkness of sin until this Savior comes and um, sets us free. Okay, however, uh, the Christian lives in this constant already but not yet. Even though we come to know Jesus and it sets us free, we have freedom from the slavery to sin, there's an enlightenment that takes place or kind of an uh, awareness that happens, we are still in the world. Mm-hmm. We're still in the fallen world. We still struggle with sin. We still wrestle with um, the confusion of the world. And the world itself is still broken around us, right? So you have uh, wars constantly, and people are at war. And even in ourselves, we're struggling to, um, to love ourselves and love other people around us. Um, we exist in this dark place. The Christian is somehow still here, 
so we can think about uh, this season of darkness and still look forward to something. In fact, we're praying constantly, come back, Lord Jesus. Uh, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, be the light. And Christmas celebrates this reminder that Jesus came once, but also that he's coming again. Right. And we're looking forward to that. And I think if you don't have that peace as a Christian, you're missing something essential. That is, the world isn't just okay, and then someday I'll die and go to heaven. It's like we're waiting for something. We want God to be more and more involved in the world and bring about this uh, kingdom of God, the, the sort of new creation and perfection of the world. Yeah, that, that, that is the tension, I think, of Advent, is to say that, um, yeah, the light has conquered the darkness, as, as we hear in the scriptures, but it's, it's, yeah, we're still in this interplay here between, like you said, it has happened, but it's not yet also in this kind of, we're waiting, this eschatological tension. And I, I, um, I think in, your, in our own life, you know, we go through seasons of, within faith, seasons of light, consolation, seasons of darkness, and you kind of, kind of pass through these things. And the importance, though, is that Christ is the light and it continues to break in. But it is beautiful. I, I used to think that Advent was, I was the only one who thought Advent's my favorite season. I just love Advent, you know. And then I realized everybody loves everybody Advent. Does, yeah, everybody yeah. loves Advent. Anybody, I mean, who's like paying attention loves Advent. Um, and I think it's because of this, because there's that sense of like, yes, he is the light, but the light is still coming into the world. And it's, it's that tension between meditating on Christ's entry in, in, in the incarnation, which we're approaching, and then also this time of eschatological waiting for the end times, for that final enlightenment, so to speak. Mm. Um, that's the interesting and beautiful kind of blend of the season that really resonates with people, you know, yeah. sitting in darkness with the candles and, and waiting, you know. And I think part of that, um, just like we intuit the the importance of this season and, and the truth and, uh, of this season, is that I would argue that there's more of the not yet in the Christian life than there is already. That we, t- we taste a piece of heaven but there is so much more that we don't know yet uh, of the goodness of God, of the potential of human beings, of our own life and reality when it's elevated. Like, what could that be like? We kind of assume it's just going to be like us, but a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And I think there's much more difference than there is similarity. Yeah. Um, okay, so I propose a second image. All right. There's not going to be a third. Just two? Just two. The other one was this weird sci-fi thing I came up uh. with. <laughs> okay, so with this proposal, um, our lives have meaning um, that comes from Jesus. The Christian life has meaning. We have access, some sort of access, to the heavenly realities. And it informs our lives, and um, it, uh, it makes it beautiful, kind of uh, enlightens us in some way. But then we still wait in darkness. So um, the second is this... Uh, little story from Helen Keller. Uh, yeah, you're on a Helen Keller oh, kick I right love now. It. I love it. But uh, so Helen Keller was born um, blind and deaf. Um, take a moment in your prayer, if you could, to um, try to experience what that would be like. You know, just close your eyes or think of, um, put your earplugs in and spend some time in prayer. Like, what would that feel like? Um, being trapped in that place. But uh, Helen Keller, in her autobiography, chapter 4, t- 
tells the beautiful story of when she learned um, to communicate. She learned uh, meaning to the things that she was touching and sensing outside of herself um, that she never had before, and it transformed her. So I'm going to read that little bedtime story, nice. and uh, um, it should give us another image. The, most, the most important day I remember in all my life is the one which my teacher, Ann Mansfield Sullivan, came to me. I am filled with wonder when I consider the immeasurable contrast between the two lives which it connects. It was the 3rd of March, 1887, three months before I was seven years old. On the afternoon of that eventful day, I stood on the porch, dumb, expectant. I guessed vaguely from my mother's signs and from the hurrying to and fro in the house that something unusual was about to happen. So I went to the door and waited on the steps. The afternoon sun penetrated the mass of honeysuckle that covered the porch and fell on my upturned face. My fingers lingered almost unconsciously on the familiar leaves and blossoms, which had just come forth to greet the sweet southern spring. I did not know what the future held of marvel or surprise for me. Anger and bitterness had preyed upon me continually for weeks, and a deep languor had succeeded his, this passionate struggle. Have you ever been at sea in a dense fog, when it seemed as if a tangible white darkness shut you in, and the great ship, tense and anxious, groped her way toward the shore with plummet and sounding line, and you waited with beating heart for something to happen? I was like that ship before my education began. Only I was without compass or sounding line, and had no way of knowing how, how near the harbor was. Light, give me light, was the wordless cry of my soul, and the light of love shone on me that very hour. The morning after my teacher came, she led me into her room and gave me a doll. The little blind children at the Perkins Institution had, set it, had sent it, and Laura Bridgham had dressed it, but I did not know this until afterward. When I had played with it a little while, Miss Sullivan slowly spelled into my hand the word D-O-L-L. -L. Skip ahead. One day, while I was playing with my new doll, Miss Sullivan put my big rag doll into my lap, also spelled D-O-L-L, -L, and tried to make me understand that D-O-L-L -L applied to both. Earlier in the day, we had had a tussle over the words mug and water. Miss Sullivan had tried to impress it upon me that M-U-G is mug and that W-A-T-E-R is water, but I per persisted in confounding the two. In despair, she had dropped the subject for the time, only to renew it at the first opportunity. I became impatient at her repeated attempts, and seizing the new doll, I dashed it upon the floor. We walked down the path to the well house, attracted by the fragrance of the honeysuckle with which it was covered. Someone was drawing water, and my teacher placed my hand under the sprout. As the cool stream gushed over one hand, she spelled into the other the word water, first slowly, then rapidly. I stood still, my whole attention fixed upon the motion of her fingers. Suddenly, I felt a misty consciousness of something, forgotten, a thrill of returning thought, and somehow the mystery of language was revealed to me. I knew then that water, W-A-T-E-R, meant the wonderful, cool something that was flowing over my hand. That living word awakened my soul, gave it light, hope, joy, set it free. There were barriers still, it is true, but barriers that could in time be swept away. Helen awakens to the world around her, awakens to meaning. You know, Things didn't have meaning before, and now they have meaning. And she describes it as a way of, uh, of enlightenment, that things um, opened up, the whole world opened up to her consciousness at that point. 
And um, this world around her became a world that she could interact with. Uh, she was trapped in her cave, in her darkness, and then uh, something changed and brought light to her world. But I think like the Christian, um, when Jesus comes to us and sets us free, he gives a great deal of meaning to our lives and opens us up to a reality, something to look forward to. And then he promises us, someday you will see. And yet, like Helen, we're still stuck in this uh, condition of uh, blindness and deafness to a certain extent, that we don't see everything yet. Uh, we're not in heaven yet. We don't have that kind of broad access to reality. And there will be surprises. You know, Helen Keller never got to see a mountain or see a bird fly. <coughs> she could have it described to her. And I think that's a lot of the Christian life. We have so much to look forward to, we, don't, we can't even imagine but we have access through this, this messenger, through the salvation that comes from Jesus, like the teacher who opens us, uh, opens us up to the reality of heaven and the reality of God and uh, teaches us to trust, to keep moving forward, to not sit in our sadness and, our, uh, and the difficulty of the dark reality of life, but uh, to look forward to the light, to keep praying and to keep uh, vigil saying, come, Lord Jesus, I know you, and I want you to return, and I look forward to uh, heavenly life with you forever. Yeah, that's good. Very interesting. Um, I think the, what's striking about uh, Helen Keller's story is in the way she describes kind of coming to meaning. Nothing was meaningful, you know, without that language, without that encounter was. Her whole life from that point forward was driven by this uh, experience of mystery, you know, uh, and I think that's what we're kind of circling back to with this mm. light and darkness thing is like mystery is only mystery when it's some way penetrable, some way knowable, you know, but in no way kind of is it exhaustible, graspable. It's just the beginning. Like you're saying, like the little bit of light that we have into these things is far less than the darkness that comes when you start to penetrate in. And the more that you go into these things, the more deeply. But you think about her heart and what was happening um, and what kind of erupted in her, this desire to know and to understand and to, um, and to kind of spend her life searching for meaning, even though she didn't have, you know, the full kind of human, um, the human senses in that sense, in that way. Um, and I just think, uh, we're so bored. Um, you contrast her passionate pursuit of meaning and her love of mystery with the over-stimulated, over-sensualized mm. kind of technological world that we're now living in. Oh, yeah. Where we're so inundated with images and sounds that we're just bored. Yeah. You know, this goes back to Goebbels' podcast at Benedictine College about lethal boredom. Yeah. Like, where's the desire for mystery? Like, so much of secularism is people just settling and saying, I don't care. I don't care about God. Why would I go to Mass? I don't, I don't care. And it's like, that's the tragedy. Yeah. Is that it's... Uh, you don't know to care, or you're just numb. Yeah. Or you're numb. With all kinds of things. Yeah. You should see a picture. There's, there are pictures, and maybe we'll have Molly post one of these as the, uh, the picture for the podcast, but of Helen Keller as an older woman, and her face shows so much joy huh. that you couldn't imagine it. You just look at that and you say, I want to be like that. Wow. And nobody says, I want to be blind and deaf. But to be that engaged with life, that hopeful, that um, 
yeah, driven by mystery and fascination about the world. You've got a book there. I'm sorry, I, I have a book. Gonna, I have a book. You're, you're, either, to, you're either reading. I'm just, yeah, I just. Oh, so that's interesting what you're saying about Plato. Keep reading. Uh, I'm just joking. Um, when you were talking, I, I was reminded of a sermon that Balthazar gave on Christmas. There's a collection of his sermons um, that he gave over the radio over one year in Germany. Um, it's called You Crown the Year with Your Goodness, Servants Through the Liturgical Year, and it just traces through the whole year. Mm-hmm. And they're amazing, as to be expected, but he has one on Christmas called Setting Out in the Dark with God. Yes. And I thought, oh, that's perfect for our topic. And one of the, I'll just read one line from it here, where, um, because the thing about the Helen Keller and our Christian interpretation of Plato's um, allegory of the cave is that that person who brings you into the light, right? Yeah. Oftentimes for them, it brings about a lot of suffering and a lot of confusion and a lot of dis- like despair, like our teacher was saying at times. Yeah. So the weird thing about the Christian life is it's not just about illumination. It's not just about you coming to see more clearly, but Christian life is about mission, right? And that mission is to become light. It's to become Christ in darkness. So you're part of the re-immersion in darkness is a missionary move, you know, where Christ says, okay, Mike, you've been given the light of faith. Now I'm sending you into the into the darkness, you know, the dark caverns of exegesis or whatever yeah, it might yeah. be, you know. And this is what Balthazar's talking about here. And this is what he says. And I thought this is really beautiful. And maybe this is just to say, and if there's somebody listening to this who is just in a situation where you're trying to be this presence of light, maybe it's with your family and it's just awkward with the faith right now or with friendship or RCA or whatever it might be, um, this is just to encourage you. Balthazar talking about um, somebody becoming, striking a tiny light in the midst of an overpowering darkness. This is what he says. Your dedication may seem unproductive and a failure, but do not be afraid you are on God's path. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me, quoting the gospel. I am walking on ahead of you and blazing the trail of Christian love for you. It leads to your most inaccessible brother, the brother most forsaken by God, but it is the path of divine love itself. You are on the right path. All who deny themselves in order to carry out love's commission are on the right path. Mm. The preeminent model of this person filled with light moving into darkness, of course, is Christ uh, on the cross. He doesn't stay on Tabor, the place of light, but he goes into the darkness of the cross and the darkness of the descent into hell. And Mary with him as his cooperator, as his helpmate, as his companion. Um, and that's, that is the normal move of the Christian life. And I think if you find yourself being kind of drawn into great places of darkness where you don't even know if your little light, your little faith is yeah. going to hold, I think that's a really good sign. You're on the right path. Yeah. That's what Balthazar is saying. I've and been reading, you know, I said I'm uh, praying with the missionaries of charity for uh, Christmas, and I've been revisiting Mother Teresa's um, kind of memoirs or the, mm-hmm. the book written about her prayer that was so marked by desolation. It's called Come Be My Light. Mm-hmm. And um, she went through lots of darkness. And I think it, it's almost like this missionary, I mean, these are the saints. All the saints experience this. Um, and even frustration in the mission, uh, like you were, you were mentioning. I think it would be like Helen Keller, now she's got meaning. Uh, then going to her community 
of others. In fact, in this case, a whole world full of people right. who are blind and deaf, and then trying to communicate with that little bit that she understands. You know, now I, she's trying to pass on this uh, the same. Uh, th- there are words for things. There, are, there's, there's an un- there are things to be understood outside of us, and the response can be, "Well, you don't know. You don't know all that well. Mm-hmm. Like, look at your life. It's not perfect." Mm-hmm. And we have to say, yeah, you're right. Uh, and yet, I'm so convinced of this right. that I have, to, I have to live a mission. I have to continue to try to be a light to the, to the nations the way that Jesus has said, you are the light. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Yeah, okay. A couple of images get I you like into it. Advent. Oh, that's really good. A very interesting. Um, and, of course, yeah, nice time, Mother Teresa, there. And you're going to be kind of right there with the, the Navy SEALs in the church for this uh, Christmas season, oh, hanging with them. Joyful little sisters. Well, um, wrap it up here with some shout-outs, then i got to go say Mass. I get to go say Mass. That's right. Okay, any? so the only shout-out for me is uh, uh, Joe Grady. Father Joe, Joe Grady, Grady has recently finished publishing his uh, mystery novel entitled Blue Bear, or The Impossibility of Anonymity. It's a uh, fascinating read uh, <laughs> about a, uh, a set of uh, mysterious circumstances and tragedy in Rome, Italy, uh, involving all kinds of wild phenomenon that uh, you would never expect. Go out and find it on Amazon today. <laughs> I helped. Okay, yeah, so okay. Jo- Father Joe was really excited when he was writing this in seminary back here. And um, I was one, one of uh, those who had the pleasure of uh, reading his uh, drafting process, and uh, so I'm really excited for him to get this out. And uh, for those, he also are... asked for the plug. He wanted the bump, yeah. and uh, I hate to, you know, play into that, but I am proud of the dude. So it, uh, and it's Brother really, uh, it's a huge accomplishment just yeah, to write a book, and supposedly it's quite good. I heard from you and from Graby also read it, and so there you go. Yeah, I, I have not. I cannot here. say for I, I am intrigued by the title though. So very nice. Well, give it a try. It's on Do you have any other shameless Amazon plugs you'd Kindle. like to make? Or <laughs> I don't know. Um, Shop at Target this year for all of your... Season celestial season. Father Mike Rapp is brought to you by Celeste Twinnings uh, Earl Grey Tea tonight. Okay, a couple of shout-outs here. Um, I love it when um, a, a priest that we live with is like... Uh, doesn't listen to the podcast, but he knows somebody who's like really into the podcast and like makes money. So Father Ryan Connors was telling me at dinner uh, one night, okay, he's good. like, he's like, I don't know what you guys are doing, but Becca Clark in DC is really into it. So I was like, thank you, Becca Clark, for oh, listening. Yes. So I yeah, said we'd surprise you, her with a podcast. If you know a priest in Rome and you listen to this podcast, please let them know so that they might <laughs> like start listening, obnox- just obnoxiously and respect us. Yeah. Finally, show us some <laughs> respect. Yeah. Um, and then there's this girl named Veronica Zeckler really wants Father Austin back on the podcast. So I want you to. Oh, I've been asking for the same. Have you? All right. All right. Good. I'll tell him that I'm having dinner with him tonight. So uh, I will tell Litke. him. Expect Litkey in t- early 2018. He'll be back. There on. we go. All right. But uh, yeah, I think that's a. We'll just call it there. Um, oh, did we do a shout out to the Regans, Jim and Mary Regan from Crofton, Maryland? Did you meet them at Christy Walsh, Christy and Steve Walsh's wedding? I think Goble did a shout-out. Oh, because I was already. gone, unfortunately. Oh, yeah, you were gone. These people were awesome. Their son, Father Kevin Regan, and their daughter, Kara. Um, 
and we met them. They came to uh, Joan of Arc that weekend, and they're on the list here, but we might have done that like a month ago. Anyways, you get another one, so thanks for listening. All right. Happy, blessed Advent, and to you and the Missionaries of Charity and Pope Francis and all those who will be with you here in Rome. Yeah, and bring my love back to the States. Will do. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everybody. And we will catch you once again right before the new year, and then we'll see you in 2018.